Thank you, Pastor Matt Doan. We appreciate that. And I, too, interesting that he brought up about Romper Room. Uh, we're a generation apart, but uh, I was thinking about that. Uh, wouldn't it be intriguing to be able to see in people's homes? I, I love the fact that many of you are there at home. You're probably in your pajamas or your sweats. You got the nice robe around you. You're sipping a cup of coffee. You spill a little bit on your robe, but nobody can see, nobody cares. We're glad that you're comfortable in your home. I'm a little bit jealous, but uh, we're glad that you're with us here as we share together in God's Word. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take hold of that because we're concluding a series that we have done through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great story. In fact, it's inter- intriguing to me that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, I mean, Solomon has written that these areas that you can see on the screen here are all mean. about 11 and a half chapters of telling us why those things can be worthless, meaningless, vanity of vanities. But he wants us to focus on those things that count forever. Let me read the text for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, and this is where the book finally lands that really counts forever. When all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. And so Solomon helps us to understand those things that count, those things that last. So I'd like to break this passage down to see how he develops it. In fact, it's a very practical book. It's a very practical passage that we could spend a lot of time on, but I'm going to have to go through some of it quickly. But I want to point out this one verse here, these two verses. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth. One thing I love to do is to study God's Word. What's beautiful about this passage is I noticed as Solomon wrote it, it really, really outlines the way I like to study God's Word, and Solomon seems to highlight that as well. He says, what we want is to be taught knowledge. The word knowledge there in the Hebrew word yada, it refers to an intimate knowledge of God. It refers to a husband's intimate knowledge with his wife and wife to the husband. It's emotional, it's spiritual, physical. And God says, I know people that way, and I want people to know me and the emotional, spiritual dimension of who I am. So to know God is to fear God. And let me say right at the outset, the word fear there doesn't mean fear as in some sort of a phobia that I have to cower in fear of what God might do. The word fear there in the Hebrew means to have awe or reference. It means in some cases to worship Him. So God is inviting us to be a people that is in awe and respect to who He is, His character that is compassionate, loving kindness, and forgiving. So He invites us into that knowledge of God as a compassionate, loving, kind God that we have awe and reverence for. So how do we obtain that? This text here gives us 
sort of a little manuscript of how to do that. It says he pondered. The word pondered there has the idea of uh, really weighing out something like on a scale. It's used of testing something. And what I love to do when I get into the words of God is to ponder that, just to begin to read it through, just reflecting. What am I observing? What am I seeing there? And then the second word that he uses, I want you to search for that. The word search there means to investigate it, to dig deeper into it, maybe to do some cross-referencing. What else is this verse referring to? What other verses may impact what this verse is telling me? It's the whole idea of really doing a study that is more than devotional, but is truly in-depth understanding the, the dimensions of all that God has since in that passage. He says to ponder, to search, and then he says to arrange God's truth. The word arrange there literally means to go straight, to walk straight before the Lord in what he wants us to do. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, don't trust in your own understanding, but let him make your paths straight. So God says, I want you to go straight. I want to lead you in the way you should go. I want to apply this passage to your life. And then finally, in that couple of verses there, he says, I want my words to be a delight to you. He says, God's words are a delight. And then he says, I want to write them correctly. We need people that delight in God's word and understand and communicate God's word accurately, truthfully, that are consistent with what God intended it to be said. And so this is a really kind of a little synopsis of how to study the Word, how to have a greater knowledge of God. The more I know about God, the more I'm going to delight in Him and trust Him and know that He is reliable to me. But I love this idea that God's words are a delight. Sometimes in my growing up years, I had the idea that, that God's Word was sort of a drudgery, sort of a boring text that I couldn't really relate to. And it wasn't really impactful in my life. But the more you understand who God is, the more you understand the, the method of understanding and studying the Scriptures, you realize there is a great delight there. Like Jeremiah 15, 16 says this. Notice Jeremiah writes, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Let me give you an illustration. Way back in the 70s, I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we lived in a dorm that used to be an old YWCA. My room, I've never been to San Quentin on death row, but my room felt like somewhere on death row of San Quentin. It was a small, you had a bed, you had a desk, and that's about it. You go down the hallway to use the restroom. And so that first year, I was a single guy, but Joy and I were dating, and then we became engaged. And some of you might remember that we, we used to write letters to each other. And this is one of those letters that Joy wrote to me. And I'm here to tell you that when Joy would write me a letter, it wasn't like, oh, maybe I'll get to it someday. It's, I'm busy. It's, I'm not sure I want to spend the time to have to read it and try to understand what is being said in there. Now, when I got a letter from Joy in my little solitary confinement room, I delighted in reading what she had to say. And I've read through a little bit of this letter. This goes way back into like 1971, just, or 1973, I should say. It's just incredible. And as I read the very last line in this letter, it says, I love you so very much. That's impactful. When God gives us his word, he says, 
I want my word to delight your heart. Sort of like a love letter from your fiance. I want to delight your heart. I want to bring you to a point where you understand what I say. Sometimes when we study God's Word, we get the feeling like, uh, well, I knew a friend that was very knowledgeable about God's Word, but he really wasn't living it, wasn't a very loving, kind person. I know people like that. They know the Word of God, but they don't seem to live it. I remember early on when I was here and uh, doing some chaplain work with the police, I was with a cop when we arrested somebody, and we, the cop arrested him. I went into the jail with him. So I was sitting there waiting for all that process to take place. Another cop said, hey, chaplain, there's someone here that would like to speak to a chaplain. Could you come and talk to him? So I went over, and there was another room, a waiting room, where this man had been arrested, and he was being processed as well, fingerprinted, et cetera. And we sat down. He says, chaplain, I wanted to talk to you. I have a, I have a few questions for you. I said, well, great. I, you know, I thought it might be something heartfelt. I want to turn my life around. I want to clean my life up. I want to go on the right track. He says, you know, I've been thinking about eschatology, and I study a lot about premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism, and I'm not sure whether I'm premillennial or amillennial, and I'd like for you to help answer some of those questions for me. And it felt like the strangest question I could possibly ever hear. I'm sitting in a jail with a man who has been arrested for dealing drugs, and he wants to talk about eschatology. Most people don't even know what that word means, but here he was who had a lot of biblical knowledge, but his life was not on the right track. And so what we want, what God wants, is to understand, to ponder, to search, to arrange, so that God can lead me into His truth and to know Him personally and to make an application to my life. Here's a good illustration of that in a positive way. Psalm 73 is a wonderful passage. In this psalm, the psalmist begins by showing his doubts about God, Asaph, questioning God, why are you allowing these things to occur? For him, you look around this world and you see a lot of unjust things occurring. And then the psalmist says this, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, and I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's beginning to question God. He's doubting God. And God loves it when we are honest with him. If that's my struggle, God, why are the things happening in this world today that make no sense to me? God says, I can handle that kind of doubt. You just come to me with it. So the psalmist says this, and then the next couple of verses he says this. When I pondered, there we go, Solomon's pondering. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And I highlight this one little phrase. I love this little phrase. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. I was greatly troubled in understanding why the world is going the way it is. I had my doubts and questions about God and his faithfulness to me until I went into the sanctuary of my God. Something happens when we enter into this presence of who God is and what God has said that begins to be life-changing for people. And that's what God wants for us. I remember a couple of weeks ago I was visiting, I was asked to go visit a man who is dying. And he is in this room that wasn't, frankly, a whole lot better, bigger than my little solitary confinement room of, the, of Dallas Seminary, and that's where he lives. 
This man lays on his bed 24 hours a day. He can never get out of his bed. His legs don't work, and he is simply there waiting to die. So I went to visit him and asked how he's doing. He shared about his life, what he used to do, how he used to live, and the things that uh, were questioning in his own soul. And I read for him a number of passages, but one I remember reading Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then it concludes by talking about, I will be in the house of the Lord forever. And I read that, and it's a familiar psalm, and I've read it hundreds of times. And after I read that to this gentleman, he looked at me and says, man, did I need that. That scripture from God has helped me to kind of gain a perspective about him. Because he lays there on that bed 24 hours a day, and all he thinks about is his body that is broken and he is literally dying with his oxygen tube, with bed sores. And what he needed was a resource to say, God, you are here with me. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, he says, that's what I needed at that moment. And I prayed for him. And he says, thank you. Thank you for helping me get my mind straight again. I thought that's what the Word of God is designed to do. And we live in a day and an age and times right now, frankly, when it's a little bit troubling. You look around the world and you see a lot of things that are going on that are, that are frankly, are troubling. When you've lived long enough, sort of like I have, you begin to realize what the Ecclesiastes says. I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. We studied this way long ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. Here's the way Solomon wrote it. And this is like almost 3,000 years ago. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. It's the familiar, there is nothing new under the sun. And to think about some of the things we're going through, and there's some real hardships around the world with thousands of people losing their lives and those who are sick and businesses being shut down, schools closed, and it's created a lot of havoc for a lot of folks, and we understand that. But I remember as I go back in time, thinking about there's nothing new in the sun, I remember Harold Camping wrote a book that said the end of the world is coming, and it was counting down the days. And then I remember when the year 2000 was rolling around, I remember Y2K, and it was sort of a panic about the sense that Y2K is going to occur. And we had some neighbors that lived down the street from us, and they're hearing about Harold Camping's prediction of, of the world coming to an end, and then Y2K, and, and the chaos that's going to come around that. Remember, they came to our home, and we sat in our living room, and I read scriptures to them that I wanted them to know that God is still in charge, that God is in control of the situation, that God has this totally in his hands, and that he's not surprised by any of that. And we go through what we're going through now with the coronavirus and the tremendous disruption of life and the hardships that this is creating, that God once again says, just come back to me. Delight in my words. Come as if you're coming back to the sanctuary where it doesn't make sense until I enter into the sanctuary of God. And then God gives me a perspective that I otherwise would not have. That's what God invites us into that kind of relationship. Solomon is saying there's a lot of things in this world that are going to be turbulent to us and that we won't get. 
But God says there's one person, there's one God, Jesus Christ, that when we turn to him, he begins to soothe our souls. I remember this couple that came to our home, and afterwards they came in a panic, and afterwards just hearing God's truth, not anything that I knew or was smart enough to say, but just saying, here's what God says. It became a, a soothing part of their own heart that God calmed their spirits, that he still got this in hand. So we've been through these, we'll go through this. It's hard in the moment, but I always want to remember that when I ponder and I think about the troubling, troubling things, I want to remember who I need to really go to. And that's what Solomon is saying, that I enter into the sanctuary of my God so I can have a better grasp as to what's going on. Solomon continues in his passage, and he tells us why we need to remember the purpose of God's truth, that God will correct us when we're wrong. He says, the words of a wise man are like goads. I didn't know what a goad is. I never hung around animals that much, except for dogs. Well, wise men are like goads. The words of a wise man are like goads. What's a goad? Here's a picture of a goad. A goad is something that a shepherd would use to poke a lamb or to poke a goat to cattle to make them go and do what they should do. So he's saying in this particular passage is that the wise words of God are here to help me to do what I should do, to lead me, to direct me in my life. There's not a marriage out there that would not be helped by reading Ephesians chapter 5 and the latter portion of that chapter where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, respect your husbands. That's a goad. That's saying, here's what I need to be doing to care for my family. God says, I have these goads in Scripture to help you become the person that I know that you really want to be to bear the kind of fruit and have that kind of life that would be lasting and satisfying. That's a delight to your life. That's a goad. And then secondly, he says in this passage that God's truth will give us strength and stability. Masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. The idea is that a, that a carpenter would take two pieces of wood and he would drive nails into it to make those two pieces of wood firm together so there's stability. So the Solomon is saying, as I saw the master carpenters drive these nails into these pieces of wood, they, they adhere together with strength. God says, I want to bring my word into your life so that there's new strength to your life, that we double down on the things that I call you to do, that I give you the capacity to live the kind of life that is stable and sure and trustworthy, that I don't have to fear about sort of the wobble of the circumstances of life because God's word is, is adhering to my soul that gives me strength to be able to live the life for him. Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy 1.13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The word of God is sound. I love this Greek word for sound. It's, the Greek word is hugiano. We get the English word hygiene from it. In fact, here's a little hand sanitizer. I brought this out from my office. We have armed guards all around so that anybody wanted to take this, they would not be able to get it. So we have, I think we might have some, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. Uh, but you know, it's interesting, this hand sanitizer. I was with a friend the other day on Friday, and she says, yeah, my son was at school. He's like sixth grade. And he had a thing of hand sanitizer like this, and he was selling for 25 cents a squirt. So the kids, the kids could get a squirt for 25 cents. And because there's short supply of this, I'm willing to do it for a dollar. 
And so if you'd like some, get, let me know. But I love this hand sanitizer. We, we read all about this. Man, that feels good. It is so, oh, man, to kill all those germs. What a wonderful thing. Now, enough with that. Back to this. What God is saying is hygiene. He wants us to have hygiene. He wants us to have spiritual hygiene. And that's what he's saying here. Retain the standard of hygienic words. God's word is hygienic. And I like to think about, if I were able to write a book, I'd call it The Sanitizing of the Soul. The Sanitizing of the Soul. That the Word of God, when I read the Word of God, when I read the Bible, it becomes this word that is this hygienic so that if evil thoughts or temptations come into my mind or evil deeds or temptations that I shouldn't do come to my attention and become available to me, the Word of God becomes that hygienic thing. In fact, we're dealing with a very literal and devastating virus that is attacking people's bodies, and it's devastating. But I'm here to say for thousands and thousands of years, we've had another kind of a virus. It's a spiritual virus. It's a spir spiritual virus called sin. It's where the temptations to do the wrong things, whether it's inappropriate anger or jealousy or greed or selfishness that Matt Doan spoke about earlier, or things that are like adultery, pornography. There's a lot of viral temptations. And what God is saying within his word is, I, I want to bring you to a sanitized place where my word is hygienic to prevent you from being overcome by the virus of spiritual attacks. And sometimes in my own soul, I get doubts or I get anxious or I get concerns. And God says, let me cleanse you. Let me purify your soul and bring you back to the words that I want you to delight in so that you can have the kind of relationship with me, that you fear me in awe and respect, and you can keep my commandments. Because God says those are the only things that are going to last, the hygienic work of the Word of God in my soul. Hebrews 4 puts it this way, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's not another book in the world that makes that claim, that penetrates deep in the soul. Let me illustrate it with our wonderful missionary family, Lindsay, and his wife, Alta. Alta is the daughter of Pastor Burry that we support and work together with in Lushnia, Albania. Lindsay was saved because of the Word of God, and I'd like for you to hear a little bit of that story of his life. So, Basically, it started in 1991 or around that time when Albania had just had the co its communist system collapse. And then at that point, the missionaries came to Albania for the first time. I'd never seen one, but I remember walking by the, by the street, going back home. I saw a Bible lying down exactly on a, on a rocky place. And so I just picked it up. I didn't know it was a Bible. I took it home and it was the New Testament. And I remember my dad telling me back in the day that if you find a book, on the street, take it home and take good care of it. And that's what I did. And as I read the book, I came across a man named Jesus. So I read about Jesus. I didn't understand too much from the New Testament, but I, I understood enough to understand who he was. And I thought that I believed in him. And then what happened is that I went to the only church in town, uh, which was the Orthodox one. I didn't get the questions I needed in order to understand the scripture. And I ended up becoming a Muslim 
because there was this Imam who explained to me that the Quran respects Jesus, but that he's only a man. And from that point, I went to uh, the, basically, to the mosque every single day, three or four times a day to pray. And then I went to the Islamic school because I wanted to tell the people about God. And I thought, this is it. I want to know about God and I want people to know about him. And then after some time, which is basically two years down the line, it, or three years down the line, it took another man to bring me back to the Word of God. And this was a man from uh, Brazil who was a missionary. His name was Emmanuel. And he spoke to me about God. We sat down for about a month together and asked him questions. And I said, look, I know the Bible fairly well, but I really want you to answer every question I have from the scriptures about salvation or about anything else. If you don't know the answer from the scriptures, don't say anything. I don't need Christianese. I just need biblical answers. And so for a month we spoke together. And then at the end of that month, I remember I was convicted. And so the, the journey that started in 1991 with the Bible lying on the street on a rocky place, actually found, that seed found its real place and, and, and came to fruition a few years later down the line when a, when a man spoke to me again about the same word of God. And from that point on, this is exactly what, I, what I've wanted to do and what I'm doing. I'm looking into the earliest time when the Bible was transmitted in order to show that what Jesus said is actually what we have today. That's a beautiful well, The Word of God that penetrates a soul and brings them to this relationship with an eternal God, to fear God and keep His commandments. And Lindsay now, in Scotland, my thanks to Aaron Holm, who was just over there a couple of weeks ago, and took that video with him. The power of God's Word to really literally change a person's destiny, to soothe their soul, to sanctify their soul, to sanitize their lives, to live a life for him. And now he's studying so that he can continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon continues in his uh, little section here at the end of the book with verse 12. He says this interesting thing that is uh, a little uncomfortable for those who write books and those who produce books. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. I don't pretend to understand everything Solomon meant by that, but one thing I really believe in, in the context of all that he is saying is that there's no other book that I can rely upon. There's no other book written in the history of mankind that is inerrant, infallible, always trustworthy, always true, that we can rely upon completely. A lot of books I read that are written by people, men or women, I always read them with a little skeptical eye because I don't know if every sentence in that book is going to be true. But when I read God's Word, I can count on every phrase, every word being chosen specifically by God to be able to speak into my soul, especially when circumstances are, are troubling and hard, like Psalm 73 that we read, that I go to His sanctuary, I go to His soul, and He feeds me, He nourishes me. I love this chart. Eric sent this to me, but Brett McCracken has created this chart that you may not make every word out. But I love this, this, this way that he has organized this. There are certain things that we bring wisdom to our lives. Well, the Bible is the primary one. It's the foundation. It's our, our daily bread. It's the basis upon which we are able to grow and know God. And then the local church helps to interpret God's Word, helps us to understand God's Word. 
no other place is going to bring God's Word except the church and those who preach and teach in schools like seminaries. And then we go to nature and beauty. Psalm 19 tells us that, yes, in nature we can learn about God. It won't be as well defined as when we go to the Scriptures, but God does reveal Himself in nature. And then going up this chart of lesser priorities are books. I love the way he phrases this or puts this in order the way Solomon would, and he says over here, more old books than new books, great books, broad array of books. We're not saying that books shouldn't be read and they don't have value. Of course that they do. But they've always got to be taken through the grid of what does God say about that so that I don't become misled by those things that are untrue from the Lord. And then atop of that is the Internet and when we have a Twitter account. And so the question should be asked, and I would ask of myself, how much time do I spend down here with those things that I know are true? And how much is this area of the Internet and the various ways that people communicate today in social media, how much of this is influencing how I feel or how I think? And I know that, you know, I read the newspaper this morning before I came here. Every single article I think I read in the paper was some coronavirus-connected piece of information. And that can be valuable to us. It can be helpful. But after a while of just reading this, frankly, it has a little bit of, a, of an anxiety-raising compulsion of my heart where I'm not sure that I'm being led in a very balanced way. Because then I need to come back to these things that God says. But this is what God says. Here's what we read about a lot, but here's what God says. I, I love some of these verses that, that God says. I want you to understand these verses, like Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him. I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength. He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him into his ears. Now, that speaks to my soul. No matter what I read in the paper, on the Internet, social media, when I go back to God's Word, there's a stability and a strength and a trustworthiness to it, and God invites us into that. And then finally... I love this proverb, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. I don't want to trust in what I think and what I feel and what someone else thinks and what someone else feels. I want to trust in what God says. So he says in conclusion, when all has been heard, it is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden whether it is good or is evil. He, he is keeping an account. But to fear God, to be in awe and reverence and worship of God, and to keep his commandments. To, the word keep means to be diligently hold on to them and learn them. 
what God has said and who God is, God's character and God's words, that my life has to rest on that truth and that reality that is given to us. No matter what the world brings our way, we want to live this way that we're able to bring to the point that we fear God and keep His commandments. Now, there's an outline that's in the bulletin, or in the bulletin, I should say, but there's one online at CalvaryLife.org, and one of the things that I tried to do on that, if you wanted to get a hold of that, is in the backside, help lead us along in the truth of God's Word. So what I did is I took John chapters 14 through 17, which is the so-called upper room time with Jesus. In fact, it's literally days before He's going to be crucified. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? It's 28 days or so until Easter to take two days on each of those passages that I've listed there with some little pertinent questions that can help you sort of think through what the passage says. And two days on each verse to really season our hearts as to the person of Christ leading up to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection so that we are embracing Jesus the way the disciples did. It's like we're sitting in the room with Jesus as he spoke to his little disciples, that little group of disciples. He says, I want to speak to you too. So I encourage you to take a look at that. That might be one way. Maybe you have your own way, but that might be one of the ways where the Word of God and the character of God, the character of Jesus Christ, can be soothing to your soul, to bring comfort and encouragement that no matter what's happening around you, think about Jesus, he knew that he's going to die in literally hours. And yet in that moment, he had that relationship with the Father. John 17 is beautiful. That calmed his heart and encouraged his soul and kept him faithful to the calling of going to the cross for you and for me. So I brought that passage that you may well know, but maybe this would be one way where you can fear God and keep his commandments, have this awe and respect and understanding of who he is and how he loves you and wants to care for you too. So let me pray for us. Father, help us now. We go through some difficult times in this world. This is a global thing that we're dealing with, and Father, this doesn't surprise you, but for a lot of us, it's hard. But I pray, Lord, in the midst of circumstances that are not always easy, in the midst of circumstances that I don't always understand, where you allow certain things to occur that frankly, are a little bewildering to me and to many of us, that we know that we can turn to you. We can turn to you with our doubts. We can turn to you with our anxieties. And we can turn to know you better. So as Solomon said, to fear you, to be in respectful awe of you, and to know your truth that can guide us, that is trustworthy, help us, Lord, to live that life. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless the leaders of our state, our country, that you would bless them with wisdom and guidance and counsel. For our medical profession, that you would give them great skill as they determine a vaccine and to help those who are sick. Lord, we pray that you would bless them with great capacity that goes beyond anything that could have been humanly determined and that you would help them and guide them. And for those in our community who are hurting, Lord, I pray your grace and your sufficiency for them to lead them along the way. Thank you, Father, for what you have given to us in your word. Help us, Father, to trust you no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.